Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, we discuss one of the dangers inherent in the symbolic life, the ever-present specter of inflation. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Thank you for your nice letter. Don't say too many good things, as I have to be careful not to be swayed away by megalomania. It's so important to keep close to earth, as the spirit is always soaring up to heaven like a flame, as much destructive as enlightening. I appreciate your genuine reactions and I sympathize with your enthusiasm because I am deeply convinced that those ideas that came to me are really quite wonderful things. I can easily say that without blushing because I know how resistant and how foolishly obstinate I was when they first visited me. And what a trouble it was until I could read this symbolic language, so much superior to my dull, conscious mind. I love this letter of Jung's, from which this week's opening quote is taken. I love it because, on the one hand, he is so honest about his own potential for self-importance, for overestimating his own intelligence and cleverness. I have to be careful not to be swayed away by megalomania, he writes. On the other hand, even as he is saying that, Jung freely admits that he sees great value in his work. I am deeply convinced that those ideas that came to me are really quite wonderful things. Notice that he doesn't say, my ideas, but rather, those ideas that came to me. Right? With this phrase, He's emphasizing that there is a distinction between himself and his work, between his person and the ideas that come to him, that visit him, as he says in the very next sentence. And yet, despite the fact that he is aware of this distinction and that he recognizes that the wisdom carried by symbolic material is, as he says, so much superior to my dull conscious mind, Jung still finds it necessary to guard against what he calls megalomania. And here, I think, 
Jung puts his finger on a very important and a very tricky dynamic that occurs in the practice of the symbolic life, not just for Jung, but for all of us. There's a tendency in any kind of creative endeavor to identify ourselves with the creative process. That is, we're often inclined to take credit for those gifts that the muse herself carries to our door. Too easily, we are seduced by the belief that we ourselves have produced what she bestows. Reflecting on her own experience, the great Jungian analyst and scholar Marie-Louise von Franz describes the error inherent in such a belief. She says, If you have made a mental effort, you can say that it was your thought. But it has sometimes happened to me that I have said something and afterwards people have quoted it, saying that by that I saved their lives. If I'm honest, I reply that I had not realized what I was saying, but said what came to me, and that happened to be something much wiser than anything I could have thought. But even if you make the effort and subjectively have the feeling that you thought it out, actually it came from the unconscious, for without its cooperation you cannot produce anything. In the last episode, Invoking the Imagination, I noted that there is a universal experience of a kind of living agency that operates separately from the exertions of the ego. And it doesn't really matter what name we give to this agency, as it's the experience that's paramount. We can call it the muse, imagination, God, or the unconscious. Regardless of what name we use, it's important to always remember that we are not this power that works in and through us. We must not be swayed away by megalomania, which is to say we must be aware of the possibility of succumbing to what is technically referred to in Jungian psychology as inflation. In his book, Ego and Archetype, Edward Edinger suggests that the biblical story of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness is a symbolic description of this ever-present danger. In that story, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the heavens open, God's Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and a voice is heard declaring, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And this stunning manifestation of the divine presence is immediately followed by Jesus being led into the wilderness by the very same Spirit to be tested by the devil. In his commentary on this scene, Edinger writes, This sequence of happenings corresponds psychologically to the almost irresistible temptation to inflation which follows the opening of the archetypal psyche. I'm going to say that again. The almost irresistible temptation to inflation 
which follows the opening of the archetypal psyche. And he goes on to say, the ego tends to identify with the newly found wisdom or energy and appropriates it for personal purposes. Our own particular revelation, of course, doesn't have to rise to the level of the Jesus story to trigger this almost irresistible temptation. It could be as humble an occurrence as finding the perfect words to capture a moment in a line of poetry, suddenly catching the deeper meaning of an idea or image you have been contemplating, or finally being able to free yourself from an old interpersonal dynamic that has long caused you frustration or hurt. Even in these simpler and more subtle forms, the temptation to inflation remains. Every little breakthrough of the creative depths into our daily lives is accompanied by an uprush of energy. And naturally, we'd like to hold on to this good feeling forever. And sometimes we might even imagine ourselves to be in possession of a new level of awareness that somehow sets us apart from everyone else. As Jung states, one can scarcely help admiring oneself a little for having seen more deeply into things than others. In the last episode, I took the symbol of the swan as the image of the living power of the creative unconscious. And I'd like to stay with this symbol a little while longer here, and this time following it through the fairy tale of the swan maidens. And this is a tale that gives us a powerful description in symbolic form of exactly the theme that we have been exploring so far. So here's the opening sequence of the Swan Maidens. There was once a hunter who used often to spend the whole night stalking the deer or setting traps for game. Now it happened one night that he was watching in a clump of bushes near the lake for some wild ducks that he wished to trap. Suddenly he heard high up in the air a whirring of wings and thought the ducks were coming, and he strung his bow and got ready his arrows. But instead of ducks there appeared seven maidens, all clad in robes made of feathers, and they alighted on the banks of the lake, and taking off their robes, plunged into the waters and bathed and sported in the lake. They were all beautiful, but of them all the youngest and smallest pleased most the hunter's eye, and he crept forward from the bushes and seized her dress of plumage and took it back with him into the bushes. After the swan maidens had bathed and sported to their heart's delight, they came back to the bank, wishing to put on their feather robes again. And the six eldest found theirs, but the youngest could not find hers. 
They searched and they searched until at last the dawn began to appear, and the six sisters called out to her, We must away. Tis the dawn. You meet your fate, whatever it may be. And with that, they donned their robes and flew away and away and away. When the hunter saw them fly away, he came forward with the feather robe in his hand, and the swan maiden begged and begged that he would give her back her robe. He gave her his cloak, but would not give her her robe, feeling that she would fly away. And he made her promise to marry him, and took her home, and hid her feather robe where she could not find it. So they were married, and lived happily together, and had two fine children, a boy and a girl, who grew up strong and beautiful, and their mother loved them with all her heart. One day, her little daughter was playing at hide-and-seek with her brother, and she went behind the wainscoting to hide herself, and found there a robe all made of feathers, and took it to her mother. As soon as she saw it, she put it on and said to her daughter, Tell father that if he wishes to see me again, he must find me in the land east of the sun and west of the moon. And with that, she flew away. When the hunter came home next morning, his little daughter told him what had happened and what her mother said. So he set out to find his wife in the land east of the sun and west of the moon. What is the proper way to receive a gift? The old hunters knew that they lived in a reciprocal relationship with nature. They knew that they were dependent on the gifts of nature, and more than that, they knew that the continued abundance of those gifts was dependent on their recognition of and participation in the sacred balance of all things. Lewis Hyde, in a wonderful book called The Gift, writes of the traditions of the Maori people as observed in the early 20th century as an example of this sensibility. The Maori, he writes, have a word, how, which translates as spirit, particularly the spirit of the gift and the spirit of the forest, which gives food. He goes on to describe how a portion of the birds taken from the forest, killed in the hunt by the hunters of the tribe, were given to the priests, who in turn cooked them on a sacred fire and prepared a kind of talisman from them. And this talisman was considered to be a gift that the tribe then gave back to the forest. And this is, to my mind, a beautiful and a moving ritual, right? It's a recognition that the source of the gift that nourishes the people must be nourished itself in return. 
Nature serves the needs of the people, but they must remember that they too are in service to nature. As Hyde puts it, the forest's abundance is in fact a consequence of man's treating its wealth as a gift. The hunter in our story seems to have forgotten this ancient principle. Or perhaps, to put it more generously, he has yet to learn it. He goes to the lake in the middle of the night to trap some wild ducks. But while he's waiting there, he's greeted by the vision of seven swan maidens dressed in robes made of feathers. They alighted on the banks of the lake, the story tells us and taking off their robes, plunged into the waters and bathed and sported in the lake. And in this moment, we might say that the hunter has an experience in which the familiar world of his hunting ground is transfigured in such a way that he is granted a glimpse of the world behind the world. His life is suddenly and unexpectedly touched by the divine colors of the creative imagination symbolized here by the play of the swan maidens. However, as we heard earlier from Edinger, the opening of the archetypal psyche is quickly followed by the temptation to inflation. And sure enough, we see the hunter swayed away by megalomania, right? He seizes the feather robe of the youngest swan maiden and will not give it back to her so that she is forced to remain behind when her sisters fly away. And then, according to the story, he made her promise to marry him and took her home and hid her feather robe where she could not find it. Now, this is an uncomfortable and even disturbing passage, weighted as it is by the patriarchal energy of power, violence, and control. It would lead us too far afield at the moment, but we could meaningfully take up several lines of exploration in connection with this, examining its political, social, and sexual implications. For our purposes, however, looking at this tale as we are, as symbolizing our relationship with our inner lives, the question that we are led to ask here is this. In what way do we act like this toward our own unconscious? How is it that we attempt to grab hold of our own creative imagination and appropriate it for our personal purposes? These questions bring us back to the issue of inflation that we spoke about earlier. The tendency to take credit for whatever energy or wisdom it is that works through us. When we give in to that temptation, we become like the hunter in our story. We seize the energy of the spirit and claim it for our own. 
But what this ultimately amounts to is a loss of the very thing we grasp at. For such a grasping is really a defense against creativity. We might imagine that we are the possessor of wings that make us capable of great flights of originality, but in truth, we have merely snatched them away from the spirit and rendered it flightless. The creative imagination must be allowed to come and go in its own natural rhythm a fact which requires of us a capacity for openness, for vulnerability, and for faith. And it's this idea, this requirement, really, that brings us to our takeaway. Of course, there's so much more that we could explore about this tale, right? For instance, the second half of the story, which I didn't read, is all about the husband's epic journey to the land east of the sun and west of the moon to be reunited with his wife. His journey, I would say, constitutes a reorientation of his relationship to the swan maiden. It puts him, as it were, in service to her. He has to fulfill her demand. He has to leave behind all he knows and possesses and venture into the unknown. But the main image I want to focus on here at the end is the image of the child. Because she represents what we could think of as the antidote to inflation. It's the little daughter who finds the feather robe and returns it to her mother. With that simple act innocently performed, she sets the swan maiden free. And it's the little daughter who is charged with telling her father where his wife is to be sought, effectively initiating him into his great task of taking up a new way of relating to the swan maiden. And we could formulate the takeaway then like this. The antidote to inflation is innocence. It is innocence, as symbolized by the child, that gives the maiden her wings and sets her free. And it's innocence that directs the hunter to where he can be restored to his wife. And just to be very clear, innocence here is not ignorance, nor is it simply a kind of blind naivete. Psychologically speaking, innocence points us back to the qualities of openness, vulnerability, and faith that we mentioned just a few moments ago. The grasping mind holds on to what is already known. It looks at the things of life through a fixed lens and is unable to perceive what is genuinely new. Innocence is an encounter with the world that is not colored by ready-made concepts or preconceived ideas. It's a way of being that is equivalent to what all the religious traditions speak of as purity of heart. 
The child is the symbol of that in us which is always learning, always growing, and is able to look at things and see them as if for the first time. The religious writer Evelyn Underhill compares this attitude of mind with that of the saint or the poet. It's a way of seeing, she says, consisting of a love for things for their own sakes and the vision of a charitable heart. And only in this way do we attain the quality of what she calls suppleness, the flexibility of mind and spirit needed for a truly creative encounter with the world. This is the gift of that childlike innocence. It frees us from a narrow self-importance, from megalomania, and gives us, as Underhill puts it, the power of responding with ease and simplicity to the great rhythms of life. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. I want to come back again to Evelyn Underhill and give you the rest of the quote that follows immediately after the section that I just shared a moment ago. In this quote, we can hear echoes of the figure of the hunter whose grasping attitude must be overcome, of the child who possesses the necessary innocence with which to perceive the world correctly, and of the swan maiden whose visitations adorn this life with meaning. Underhill writes of the necessity of overcoming that habit of mind that makes ourselves the center of the universe. And she goes on to describe the results that flow from successfully taking up this task. She writes, Then your attitude to life will cease to be commercial and become artistic. Then the guardian at the gate, scrutinizing and sorting the incoming impressions, will no longer ask, what use is this to me, before admitting the angel of beauty or significance who demands your hospitality. Then things will cease to have power over you you will become free.
Until next time.